Do grab a seat. And do turn, we're going we're gonna to start in Joshua chapter 14. So do make sure you can see Joshua chapter 14 in front of you. And let me pray as we begin. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we've just sung, we can stand on every promise of your word. Father, thank you that your words are true, that yours are the words of eternal life. And so we thank you now that we can come and listen to you speak to us. Give us ears to hear and please change us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin uh, looking at these passages this evening, I want you to try and think of a time when you felt out of control. Think of a time when you felt out of control. We're heading into winter. Maybe you can remember a time when you uh, skidded on a patch of ice as you were driving your car. Uh, maybe uh, what comes to mind is uh, like me trying to get your toddler uh, to do what you've asked them to do. Um, think of a time, just for a moment, where you feel out of control. And I imagine as you think of that moment, as you have it in your mind, or whatever it is, it doesn't bring up particularly pleasant memories, does it? Because most of us, if not all of us, don't like the feeling of being out of control. Some of us probably hate this kind of feeling more than others, but all of us just, just don't like feeling like things are out of our control, that things are beyond us. Or to put it another way, we don't like the feeling when something or someone else is in control and we're not. And so I have that feeling in mind because it's that feeling um, that I want us to keep in mind as we look at these chapters of Joshua. Uh, this evening, as John has already uh, said, and as you've seen through the readings, we're covering an even bigger section than last week. We're looking at chapters 13 right through to 21. Uh, just to say, if you're, you're new or visiting CEC, we don't normally cover such, uh, cover such huge chunks uh, of the Bible in one hit, but we are tonight. And as I said last week, we're obviously not going to be able to cover every single verse in those chapters. Instead, what I want us to do again is to zoom out and see the big picture, the, the big message of these chapters. And then once we've done that, we can, we can zoom in and see what some of the implications of that big message might be, both for the Israelites back then and for us today. And so this week, the big thing that we need to see in these chapters is that God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is in control. And as we're going to see, as we, we work our way through, that was a really good thing, even for the most OCD of the Israelites. And it's a really good thing for us too. So just look with me again at chapter 14, where we're going to begin. Because in chapter 14, as you hopefully picked up from the readings, uh, these, these chapters, they're all to do with the division of the land to the different tribes of Israel. And as you might have spotted down there in verse 2, uh, this is specifically about the land to the nine and a half tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, that, that isn't because uh, Joshua couldn't count, uh, but as chapter 13 tells us, and, and also in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 14, it's because some of the tribes stayed east of the Jordan. If you can think way back uh, weeks and weeks ago when we heard about some of those tribes that didn't cross over but stayed east of the Jordan, so already have their land. And then there are other tribes, tribes like the Levites, who receive a slightly different inheritance. Uh, 
And so these chapters, through to 21, they're specifically about these nine and a half tribes receiving their inheritance. And it's fair to say that chapters like these in the Bible can make for pretty tough reading. If you've ever tried to do something like reading through the Bible in a year, these are the sort of chapters that it feels like you just need to get through in order to get to the kind of the more meaty, the more exciting, the more relevant stuff. It's hard, isn't it, to read about where boundary lines are drawn and who gets that bit of desert and that valley and that mountain, especially when we don't really know even the area that's being spoken about. But as dry and difficult as these chapters might seem, I want us to see this evening that they are also full of wonderful truth. Because so far in Joshua, if you've been tracking with us over the last months, we've read about how the Israelites entered the promised land. We've read about them conquering the promised land. But now finally, we get to read about them owning the promised land. 450 years after Genesis 12, after the promises to Abraham, the land is finally theirs. From that rock, to that tree, to that valley, to that town, it's all theirs. After all that has happened to them, from their ancestors being rescued from Egypt, to the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, to the crossing of the Jordan, to the fall of Jericho, after battles and successes and failures, now the land is theirs. And as we step back and consider all that has happened, the big thing that we need to see is that right from the very beginning, God has been in control. Whether in small ways or dramatic ways, God has been working to ensure that his promises are kept. Uh, That's made even clearer for us as we look through these chapters. You see, everything in these chapters happens just as God promised it would. So just flick over to 15 verse 1. There's going to be a little bit of flicking backwards and forwards. I apologise, but just uh, stay with me. At 15 verse 1, we see the allotment to the tribe of Judah. And whilst that might not mean all that much to us, if you were an Israelite reading this, well, that might have come as a bit of a shock. Because every Israelite schoolboy knew that when you were dividing up an inheritance, you started with the oldest son. But Judah wasn't the oldest. Judah was fourth. And that's because at the end of Genesis, Jacob gathered together his sons to bless them. But they didn't all receive the same sort of blessing. Reuben, the eldest son, was told he'll no longer be first because he slept with one of Jacob's concubines. Simeon and Levi, the second and third, they're also told that they won't receive a normal inheritance. They'll be scattered through the land. And then comes number four, then comes Judah. And God's promise to Judah back in Genesis 39 was that he will make him first among his brothers. And so sure enough, 400 years later in Joshua 15, here we have Judah receiving the land first. Or if you flick over to chapter 16, verse 4, you see something similar happening. The tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim receive their inheritance. But who's first in chapter 16, verse 5? It's Ephraim, the younger son. Why? 
Because that is what God said would happen. Again, back in Genesis, Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob for a blessing. He puts Manasseh in front of Jacob's right hand and Ephraim in front of Jacob's left hand so he can bless them. The right hand being the, the first. What does Jacob do? Well, he swaps his hands over. And so the blessing of the first goes to Ephraim. And so God decides that Ephraim should be first. And that in chapter 16, that is exactly what we see happening. And so these things are happening just as the Lord said they would. But, but then flick back to chapter 14. Flick back to chapter 14 and verse 2 and just see how uh, this land is assigned. Verse 2. Their inheritance were assigned by lot to the nine and a half tribes as the Lord commanded through Moses. Uh, the inheritance of the land, it's divided up by the casting of lots. Uh, it's kind of like the ancient equivalent of drawing straws or picking names out of a hat. Uh, but as we read those examples that I've just pointed to, uh, the examples of people like Judah and Ephraim, we see this isn't just drawing names out of a hat. This isn't random. This isn't down to chance or good luck as to who gets this bit of land or that bit of land. No, the whole thing is under God's control. Proverbs 16 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. We don't cast lots to make decisions today, but you get the point, don't you? From the crossing of the Jordan, to the defeat of Jericho, to the roll of a dice, God is in control. And that is a wonderful thing. Because as we've heard a number of times already this evening, that means his promises are absolutely certain. God is in control. He is powerful over every single thing, every single event that happens in his world. And that meant he could give his inheritance to his people just as he promised them. And so as we read in chapter 21, right at the end of this section, kind of summing up all this distribution of the land in 21 verse 43, it says, So the Lord gave Israel all that he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. God is in control. And that means not one of his good promises will fail. And if you're a Christian here this, this evening, well... That is wonderful news for us, isn't it? Because these chapters, as difficult and as dry as they might seem to read through, remind us, they assure us that God is in control. That he keeps his promises. That as Danny has already prayed, that all of his promises are yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Including the promise of an inheritance. Uh, at the start of his first letter in the New Testament, Peter reminds Christians of that promise. He says this, In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. 
He says, God has an inheritance for you. He's promised it for you. And then he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You see, Joshua 13 to 21 is a wonderful part of the Bible because it shows us that God is in complete control. And that means he always keeps his promises. And so with that, that big picture in mind, that big sweep across the chapters in mind, I want us to see two ways that we can respond Two ways that we can respond to the fact that God is in control and always keeps his promises. And the first is that we can pray for God's promises. We can pray for God's promises. Turn with me to chapter 17. Chapter 17 is all about the allotment of the land to the tribe of Manasseh. And in 17 verse 3, we're told about the five daughters of Zelophehad. Manasseh's great-great-grandson. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago in the morning for Noah Laverty's dedication service, you'll remember that this is where that name comes from. You'll also remember that uh, Noah's dad, Reese, explained that back in Numbers chapter 27, God said to these women that because their father had no sons, only daughters, or that the inheritance would go to them. And so now, years later, we see in verse 3 that they come to Joshua and to the leaders and they ask for the land that they were promised back then. In other words, God's promise to them shapes their request of him. And the same is true for us today. You see, if our world isn't just random chaos, if it's not just uh, things happening with no one in control... But if God is sovereign, if he is control over every single event, and if he is the promise-keeping God, well, then our prayers, uh, they're not just wishful thinking. Uh, They're not just fingers crossed. They're not some form of meditation just to calm us down, but uh, just speaking into thin air. Now, when we pray, we're talking to the promise-keeping, sovereign God. And if we come to him and if, if we ask for the things that he has promised to give us, well, then we can come to him with confidence, just like the daughters of Zelophehad. If God is in control, then we can confidently ask him for the things that he has promised us. And so we can come to him and ask for forgiveness for our sins. Knowing, 1 John chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can confidently come to God and ask for wisdom. Knowing, James chapter 1, that if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We can ask God for the strength to persevere in the Christian life, knowing that Philippians chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that God is in control means that we can pray in line with his promises. As one author puts it, we can pray the Bible back to God. 
And we can do so with confidence. Confidence that he hears and he answers those prayers. One really easy way that you could start doing that, start praying for God's promises, both for yourself and for other people, would be to grab one of these little books, Five Things to Pray. There's a whole series of them there at the back. This one is Five Things to Pray for the People You Love. Uh, They're short, they're easy to flick through, and all all they are is doing this. Uh, They take bits of Scripture, bits of the Bible, promises that God has made, and they use those to pray for our own heart, to pray for our church, to pray for the world, to pray for different people that we come into contact with. You can pray God's promises for yourself and for other people. Grab one of those and start doing that. Knowing God is in control means we can pray for his promises, but it also means we can press on towards the goal. By this point in Joshua, the Israelites have basically conquered the promised land. They've won all the major battles. They've defeated all the major armies. But as we read through, you notice that there are still these pockets of resistance, still cities and towns with Canaanites left in them. And so in chapters 13 to 21, God tells the Israelites which land is theirs, which land they've been given. But he also says to them, you need to finish the work of driving out the enemy, driving out the people who live there. And as we began to see last week, if you were with us, the same is true for us as Christians. On the cross, the Lord Jesus won a decisive victory. By dying in the place of sinful humanity, he took the punishment that we deserve. He bore God's right anger towards us, towards our sin. And so if we trust in him, then God says we are forgiven. The debt has been paid. Our sin has been dealt with. In other words, at the cross, Jesus defeated those greatest enemies, the enemies of sin and death. The war has been won. But as we saw last week, even though that is true, even though the victory is certain, God still calls us to go to battle. Not against other people, but against the pockets, uh, the small little bits of resistance, the pockets of sin that still remain in our lives. Against the anger and the envy and the boasting, and the greed, and the lust, the things that have no place in the lives of God's people. God calls his people to do battle with those things. And just as the Israelites were to drive out the enemy, so we are to drive out sin. That is what God has called us to do in this life, to keep fighting sin. It's what we've been called to do, but like the Israelites, it's something that we often fail to do. You can see that as you read through these chapters. The repeated refrain comes up that the Israelites, they failed to drive out all of the enemy. Don't flick to these, but just listen. 15 verse 63, we read that Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Or 16 verse 10, they did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Giza. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim but are required to do forced labor. 17 verse 12, the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. Repeated through these chapters, it is the fact that Israel failed to drive out the enemy. 
The Manassites in in chapter 17 say to Joshua, we can't do it, Joshua. We can't dislodge them. They're too strong. They're too powerful. They've got too much technology, too many weapons. We can't do it. And so often we say the same about the sin in our lives, don't we? Just like the Manassites, we we look at our sin and we say, well, I I can't do it, God. There's nothing I can do about that. More often we think there's nothing I want to do about that. If you're anything like me, you don't want to have to work hard in the Christian life. I don't want to have to fight my sin. It's much easier to make excuses for it than to fight it. And so I wonder, what, what excuses do you make for the sin in your life? How often do you say to yourself, well, what do you expect? I'm only human. How often do you blame your circumstances, a a lack of time or money or a stressful home life or a full-on job? How often do you try and counterbalance uh, your sin with good deeds? Well, well, my church attendance is pretty good, so so what's a bit of self-indulgence over here? Who's going to complain about that? How often do you compare your sins to the sins of others? At least I'm not doing that. My thing's minor compared to their problem. So often we make excuses for our sin. We find reasons not to fight. Or maybe we do fight. Maybe we do try, but, but frankly we're just a bit battle-weary. We think I can't change. I can't be different. This is just who I am. Whether you are failing to fight sin because you don't want to or whether you are feeling worn out by the fight, we can take heart as we look at the example of Caleb. Just look with me at chapter 14. Back at chapter 14 and verse 6. If you can remember, Caleb was one of the 12 spies that was originally sent into the land. And just look at what he says in chapter 14, verse 7, sorry. Chapter 14, verse 7. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people sink. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Caleb was a man who once stood on the edge of the promised land, who looked out at the terrifying opposition, and because he wholeheartedly trusted the Lord, was ready to walk in there and fight. He trusted God, he knew that God was in control, and so he would take them on. But that was back then, he he was a young 40-year-old back then, Uh, that was a lifetime ago. There have been battles and trials, suffering and sweat in the years since that day. So what about now? What about battle-weary Caleb now? How does the 85-year-old Caleb feel about the fight today? 14 verse 11. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. 
Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and that their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Just as he said. Caleb was ready to fight at 40 and he was just as ready to fight at 85. Why? Because he knew that God was in control. He knew that God always keeps his promises. And that meant he continued to trust the Lord throughout his life. It meant that he could keep fighting to the very end. You see, the Christian life is a life of perseverance. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a life in which we are called to fight and to keep fighting. Just listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3. He writes, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We don't know when we'll finish the race. We've got no idea what tomorrow morning will hold. But we do know that as Paul says, Christ has taken hold of us. By his grace, he has guaranteed our future with him. If you believe in Jesus, your future is certain. And so today, well, today you can keep fighting. You can keep pressing on. The great reformer Martin Luther used to talk about having two days in mind. This day and that day. And the big question for Luther was, how should I live this day today in the light of that day, the day I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that we can all ask ourselves, isn't it? When you wake up tomorrow morning, ask yourself, how should I live today at work, at school, at home? How should I live today in the light of that day? What will it mean for me to be like Caleb, to, to live wholeheartedly for Jesus today? Knowing that God is in control. Knowing that he always keeps his promises. That is what Caleb believed. And that meant he could keep on fighting, even as an old man. Paul believed that. Paul believed that God was in control and that meant he could press on towards the goal press on until he received that inheritance in full until the day when he would see the Lord Jesus face to face and hear those words well done good and faithful servant come and share in your master's happiness and so as we close let's pray let's pray that we would know God's control and let's pray that that would give us confidence Confidence to come to him and ask for the things that he's promised us. 
and confidence to keep pressing on, to keep fighting sin until the day we go to be with him in glory. Let's pray. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you this evening that every one of your promises has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. That all your promises are yes in him. Father, thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control of every aspect of our lives and we can trust you that you are good and faithful and that you forgive us our sins. Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus. Help us to have confidence in him today and this week. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.